Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. And Alex, you have somebody with you today. Why don't you introduce them to our audience? Yeah, new producer Daphne is here. So uh, everyone say hi to a muffled Daphne because we're both in this tiny room with masks on. (laughs) Say hello, Daphne. Hey, Chuck. Hey, everyone. Hey, your voice sounds oddly muffled very odd how that works out uh how was your weekend daphne um my weekend was great i went to a memorial of david graber oh no kidding where was that it was a humboldt park oh no kidding was there a big big crowd no (laughs) (laughs) thanks for that report on the memorial for uh david graber and alex how was your weekend uh, it was fine. I want to say something about uh, something that happened on the show last week, but I'll say it at the end of the show. Oh, really? Why? What happened last week? I'll talk about it at the end of the show. <laughs> is that a tease? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe it is. Yeah, hey, look at that. Uh, the toe I broke during the vice presidential debate last week, uh, it keeps re-breaking. Like, it keeps popping back into place, and then the next step, it will break again. So my weekend was... Painful. More importantly, Alex, do you know what this week's question from hell is yet? Uh, yes, this week's question from hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Donald Trump? <laughs> what are you going to be deranged about after Donald Trump? Is derangement, is that actual uh, injury to the brain? I can't remember. <laughs> I think it might be. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out all our new merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support, including our new gray on black t-shirt, tote bag, uh, what else is there, Bait, uh, trucker's cap. Find out all the ways that you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell from following our guest. Speaking of which, on today's show, five global banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, Standard Chartered Bank, Deutsche Bank, and Bank of New York Mellon, have moved trillions of dollars in illicit cash for shadowy characters and criminal networks even after these same megabanks had been fined millions of dollars by U.S. regulators for doing the exact same thing. 
Following years of cracking down on banks for laundering money that appears to be from criminal networks, nothing seems to have changed. In the majority of the reports of suspicious movement of money, there are no records of the transactions. The fallout from this money laundering has been unsafe working conditions, leading to the deaths of workers, depressed communities, desperate for employers, giving tax incentives for the fraud to the fraudsters to set up shop in their towns, only to leave facilities dilapidated and abandoned in many small towns and big cities' economies going from bad to worse. In other words, you would think this would be all over the news, especially when the story broke nearly five weeks ago. Look, we're a nickel and dime operation, so it took us a while to get one of the journalists who broke the story on our show. But what's the big corporate mainstream media's excuse for not covering this story? Why are what is known as the FinCEN files, F-I-N-C-E-N files, U.S. Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network's files, not a major topic of the presidential debates? Yes, the Treasury was fully aware of what was going on and apparently did absolutely nothing to stop it. Criminal money laundering by some of the world's largest banks just continued. But this is not the media. This is hell. So we'll actually learn all about the FinCEN files in a few when we speak with award-winning journalists and International Consortium of Investigative Journalists chief reporter Ben Hallman, who leads the reporting team and wrote the article. With Deutsche Bank's help, an oligarch's, oligarch's buying spree trails ruins across the U.S. heartland. Find Ben's writing and all the ICIJ's work on the FinCEN files at ICIJ.org. Ben's awards include the 2016 Gold Keyboard Award from the New York Press Club, the 2015 Al Newharth Innovation and Investigative Journalism Prize from the Online News Association, the 2015 Educator Writers of America Award for Data Journalism, and the 2014 Bartlett Steele Bronze Prize for Investigative Reporting, Named for the two investigative reporters, Dan, Don Bartlett and uh, James Steele, who have both appeared here on This Is Hell. You can follow Ben Hallman on Twitter at Ben underscore Hallman. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and I believe Alex or Daphne, one of them, has this week's hangover cure. Uh, this week's hangover cure is water, darkness, no smoking, eat, no bubbly, and lighter colored drinks. <laughs> According to the book Hangover Helper Delicious Cures from Around the World by Lauren Shockey, chug lots of water before, during, and after drinking. Studies show recuperating in total darkness to be effective in reducing a hangover's recovery time. Smoking significantly increases the odds of getting a hangover and I makes them that. more severe. Eat a big meal prior to drinking. Carbon fat heavy foods will help slow alcohol's absorption in the body. The carbon dioxide in sparkling wines and other fizzy alcoholic drinks speeds up the alcohol's absorption into your body faster than beverages without bubbles and darker drinks for example bourbon brandy red wine etc contain higher levels of congeners 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 which can contribute to hangovers so that makes this week's hangover cure water <laughs> darkness no smoking eat no bubbly and lighter colored drinks. <laughs> Those are several hangover cures. Who's kidding who? That's not just one hangover cure. That's ridiculous. Putting profits before people since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to support completely listener supported. This is hell. Sure, you can get the This is Hell face mask or trucker's cap or t shirt or tote bag or coffee mug to show your support. But you can also become a subscriber to This Is Hell's Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 
Patreon podcasts. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews, both of which you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. Last week, we said we would share our interview with historian William Bloom from 2011 when he argued that the U.S., the Obama administration, the State Department of Hillary Clinton, should not be engaging in NATO's bombing of Libya, which led to the fall of Muammar Gaddafi. And we actually did share that interview. William's position was not popular at the time, but is something to consider in retrospect especially after our discussion with The Guardian's Daniel Trilling last week on people from all over Africa fleeing Libya in makeshift boats in a desperate attempt to cross the Mediterranean Sea. We said we would share that interview, and we did. I also said I would take you behind the scenes to tell you what my work week is like, how I do my part in putting the show together. Well, that's not what I talked about on last Friday's Patreon podcast, so my apologies. Instead, When I got home from the show, after telling you I would be revealing my role on the show, my home state of Michigan was the target of an armed coup that conspired to rush the state capitol, kidnap the governor, institute what they call a Bill of Rights government, put the governor on trial, and then execute her on charges of tyranny. So yeah, I had to talk about that instead. If you want to hear what my work week is like, tune into this Friday's Patreon podcast again at 10 a.m. Chicago time by going to patreon.com slash this is hell and subscribing there. But my home freaking state of Michigan, a state that does not allow you to bring signs into the Capitol building. You can't bring a sign into the Capitol building, but it does let you carry an assault rifle into the same building. Nearly had a coup. And that's all I could think about last weekend. And it kind of consumed my weekend as well. Except for other really awful things that happen. By the way, the reason you can't bring a sign in is if you hang it, the sign could damage a wall. And the Capitol Building Administration is very concerned about the damage you might do to that wall. But assault rifles? I mean, what harm could they possibly do to anyone? And the harm that tolerating and enabling those armed dopes was revealed by the terrorism charges leveled by the FBI and the 13 co-conspirators who were from across the state of Michigan, not just from one small town somewhere. No, they were from all over God's little mitten. Of course, Fox News and President Trump went beyond tolerating and enabling an armed insurgency. They actually cheered it on, promoting it, calling murderers of peaceful protesters heroes, rallying armed crowds to protect their towns and racist statutes from completely made-up armies of Antifa who are coming to eat their children and drink their blood in some satanic ritual. Yet, the next four years are going to be a QAnon presidency if Trump wins. So how would Fox News handle an attempted armed overthrow of one of the United States of America? Being all patriotic, you'd think Fox would run to the state's defense, condemning the injustice of an armed overthrow of a democratically elected government. No. Either because they realized they were complicit in the plot to kidnap and kill a governor and overthrow a state, or... I can't think of another reason why Fox News ran away from the story as fast as you can say the real injustice is Joe Biden adhering to the debate commission's demand that the next debate be done virtually, which was done back in 1960 during one of the Nixon-Kennedy debates. Yeah, who knew? I didn't know. I had no clue. I just know the one where Nixon looks horrible. That's how Fox News and the right operates. Whatever claim that is laid at their feet, whatever charge is thrown at them, they use the Pee Wee Herman strategy of, I know you are, but what am I? But in this case, their moral equivalency is that Joe Biden agreeing to debate rules is as immoral, unethical, undemocratic, 
is as much of an abuse of power, even a power grab, that is far worse than any attempt at an armed overthrow of the state of Michigan. There's nothing to see here. Move on. Keep because the real injustice is the rules are the rules regarding a debate. Not alleged terrorists making IEDs. Ignore that and let's get back to the real threat to democracy. Debate rules that insist a debate be done virtually and not in person. Fox News spent all weekend working so hard to completely erase that attempted coup from their viewers' reality, replacing it with the real evil that threatens us all. Debate rules. So if you want to hear me go off on the attempted armed coup of the state of Michigan and why, as a Michigander, it comes as absolutely no surprise to me that the first state, yeah, I said the first state because this is going to happen again and again, count on it, that the first state to be targeted with an armed coup in the 21st century would be the Great Lakes State, my home state of Michigan, Become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell because I do have a lot more to say about what's happening in God's Little Mitten. A place where you can often hear people saying, This is hell. Coming up, some of the world's largest banks are laundering trillions of dollars in money that may have come from criminal networks. We will also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy this is hell trillions of dollars in suspicious money seems to have been laundered by the world's leading banks and regulators knew all about it and apparently did nothing here to help us understand a scandal that directly affects the lives and livelihoods of nearly everyone in the united states International Consortium of Investigative Journalists Chief Reporter Ben Hallman, who leads the reporting team and wrote the article with Deutsche Bank's help on an oligarch's buying spree trails ruin across the U.S. heartland. You can find Ben's writing and all of the ICIJ's work on the FinCEN files at ICIJ.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me on the program. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben underscore Hallman. As the ICIJ reported back in September, secret U.S. government documents reveal that J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, and other big banks have defied money laundering crackdowns by moving staggering sums of illicit cash for shadowy characters and criminal networks that have spread chaos and undermined democracy around the world. Now, these documents are referred to as the FinCEN files. Back in 2016, ICIJ obtained what were called the Panama Papers, and ICIJ reported at the time the Panama Papers records had revealed how 140 politicians, as well as celebrities, drug dealers, alleged arms traffickers, and the global elite obscured their wealth, legally and illegally, and questionable business deals through hard-to-trace companies and tax havens. Ultimately, the documents provided an unprecedented look at the secretive industry of offshore finance and how it has been used to hide all manner of nefarious behavior. Well, FinCEN is about global banking, and the Panama Papers focused on a single law firm, a little-known firm uh, but very powerful called Mausak Fenseca, based in Panama, thus the Panama Papers, and they're 40 years growing to as many as 35 locations around the world and becoming one of the top creators of shell companies and corporate structures that can be used to hide ownership of assets what combined does FinCEN and the Fa- Panama Papers reveal to you about the state of global banking, or are these completely unrelated? No, I, th- I think they're definitely related. I mean, if you're doing your little Venn diagram, there'd be overlapping circles. And, and in both instances, they really point to 
um, how, uh, you know, the wealthy and well-connected and was, you know, in the Panama Papers. And then for Finson Files, we focus more on uh, uh, oligarchs and criminals exploit uh, weak um, banking rules and, uh, and especially exploit a system that allows them to create secret companies um, in the Caribbean and even in the United States and sort of use those companies to hide, uh, hide their loot. Mossack Fonseca closes doors in April 2018, two years after the ICIJ investigation. How successful was that investigation into revealing and ending an abuse of power and wealth? Because I'm, I'm, you know, curious from that record, from that history, what we might be able to expect from the FinCEN files being released. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, well, one, you know, we reported that um, governments report, have recovered billions of dollars in the years since Panama Papers. But I think, you know, what you know, what we're looking at and I think how maybe readers will ultimately gauge, the, you know, the impact of our investigations is sort of like what laws and rules and standards change. And we're seeing some change, you know, in the, in the UK has adopted some stricter rules around what kind of uh, reporting companies have to do about who actually owns them. In the U.S., uh, we have um, this legislation right now uh, shepherded by um, um, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown that would rec- um, create what's called a registry where um, uh, companies that uh, do business here have to, would have to report to someone, not public, at least in the current draft, but um, would have to make, make, uh, make available to regulators information about who owns them. I should make that point here. You know, it, in, in Delaware, you know, we talk about offshore secrecy havens and tax havens, and you hear those phrases. The U.S. is really the probably the biggest tax haven in the world or secrecy haven in the world, not tax haven, secrecy haven in the world. Delaware, Wyoming, some other states allow um, businesses to set up companies and simply not disclose who really owns them. You were just mentioning how they reacted to the Panama Papers. The investigation on FinCEN files found that five global banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, Standard Chartered Bank, Deutsche Bank, and the Bank of New York Mellon, moved illicit cash for shadowy figures in criminal networks even after U.S. authorities fined these financial institutions for earlier failures to stem flows of dirty money. Fines don't seem to work in changing the behavior of banks. Is the problem simply... The fines are too low, or is there something else that can be used to better deter banks from this kind of behavior? Well, so, you know, what you talk about, the, the U.S. Justice Department, and that's sort of one of the lenses we looked at this investigation through. The banks you mentioned have been fined again and again for um, allowing, uh, you know, criminals and oligarchs and the rest to, to uh, basically, you know, launder their cash through their, through their banking systems. And the, the punishment tends to be sort of the following. They pay a fine, which relative to the bank profits is pretty small. Um, and then there's a promise of good behavior. And, you know, these, these are the term of art is deferred prosecution agreements. And basically what the um, government says is, look, we're going to bring criminal charges against you, but we're going to put them up on a table, up on a shelf. And if you, um, as long as you sort of promise to do these reforms and pay this fine, um, after a number of years, we'll sort of take it off the shelf and we'll dismiss the charges. But, you know, our investigation found that even after get, entering into these deferred prosecution agreements, uh, the banks, you know, you mentioned, you know, basically continued to service the same types of clients that had gotten them in trouble in the first place. It also states your report also finds that in half of the FinCEN files reports, banks didn't have information about one or more in- entities behind the transactions. 
How easy or difficult is it to open secret uh, accounts with anonymous account holders? And, and can anyone get one? Can I go to my local uh, branch of Chase yeah. and ask for a secret account? You can. I don't know that you'd go to your local branch, but there's an entire, there's really an entire dark money industry. And I think, you know, ICIJ, we've reported on a lot of things over the last decade, but we keep coming back to sort of this issue or this problem again and again, because it perpetuates so many other problems. But, you know, bottom line, you can, you can open up, you can start a company in the British Virgin Islands uh, without too much trouble or money. Um, and, or, you know, one of these other tax havens or secrecy havens. Um, and you can uh, begin to use it to acquire other companies and or other businesses or have it as a destination for funds. And and if this all sounds complicated and confusing, it's because it is and it was designed to be that way. So, you know, the more different layers you put between yourself and the money, the more difficult it is for any one journalist or law enforcement officials or even the banks themselves. And I think one thing that we really saw as we began to dig into these Trovo documents it's just how much of a challenge even the financial institutions were writing about, just how many challenges they had in identifying whose money they were moving. Often they couldn't figure it out. And that's because of these because of the existence of these uh, these tax havens and offshore secrecy havens. Is that why prosecutors and agencies rarely prosecute megabanks? Because it is that difficult or is it more seen as a. Uh, cost or resource uh, issue? Do they go after more low-hanging fruit, or do they not go after banks in general? Look, I think money laundering cases in general are very hard. Um, there isn't the kind of public outcry to take them on as there are other types of, you know, criminal acts. Uh, again, because it all happens sort of in the shadows. Um, they do, you know, the, the DOJ does bring, you know, quite a few cases against lower-level money launderers, uh, usually related to sort of drug cases, right? Um, the biggest banks, you know, why did they, why have they sort of largely es- escaped um, any severe consequences? You know, I, I, I think that's just a bigger problem and one that we've been grappling with since at least 2008 and the financial crash. Um, I think the too big to jail phenomena, this is just my opinion, uh, is real. And there's a real political cost to holding accountable um, senior executives at major financial institutions. You know, they have a lot of political clout. So are any of them ever held accountable when it comes to possible criminal penalties? Is is the problem that there are no or at least there are no uh, criminal penalties that are enforced upon bankers, enforced upon actual individuals who may be responsible for the laundering? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty rare. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare. And in, with the in with the biggest institutions, um, as far as I know, just it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, and look, and let me just say, because, you know, we're just we're talking, we don't have a representative from a bank on the call. I think they would say that, listen, you know, we are, um, first of all, we're following the rules. We file, um, you know, co- collectively, they file, you know, uh, more than a million uh, what are called suspicious um, activity reports about their own clients every year. And those reports go to U.S. law enforcement officials. And they're saying, look, well, look, if you, you know, you want to do something that we're giving you the information, go act on it. Um, I think what our investigation found was that, you know, they, they often tend to use these SARS, as they're called, as, as sort of a cover, right? So they, they file the reports, um, uh, but then don't take action to close accounts or, um, you know, stop the dirty money from flowing through their, uh, through their banks.
So are they just doing the minimal to be held legally accountable? And how high is the standard for something being considered, uh, you know, suspicious activity? Is that a low bar or a high bar? Uh, it's it's a pretty low bar, actually. And that's what explains why there's so many of these reports filed every year. Um, and, and the banks would even maybe say the bar is too low and that they're, you know, they spend, you know, billions of dollars in compliance and, they're, having, they're filing reports on all types of transactions that they shouldn't be filing reports on, uh, wasting compliance officers' time, that kind of stuff. Um, but we really focused on the biggest cases and high, like sort of vis- visible people, um, uh, either, either people who were um, either directly implicated in corruption cases or were connected to them. And you know, in, in these cases, you know, what we found again and again as we sort of reviewed, you know, the thousands of files was that the banks, you know, either either knew or should have known about the person's involvement with crime or corruption or whatever the illicit activity was, and yet continued to provide banking services to them uh, sort of for year after year. The ICIJ also reports the leaked documents known as the FinCEN files again include more than 2,100 suspicious activity reports filed by banks and other financial firms with the U.S. Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Therefore, it's called FinCEN. The agency, known in shorthand as FinCEN, is an intelligence unit at the heart of the global system to fight money laundering. So to what extent do the files then reveal that the U.S. Treasury Department is or was fully aware of who, how, why, and when the megabanks are laundering money, and the main regulating and enforcement agency of the United States, the Treasury Department, is being negligent? Well, I mean, one way to answer that question is look at what happened just before we published. Um, FinCEN, which you mentioned as part of the Treasury Department, announced sort of a major rulemaking. They're looking to reform their anti-money laundering practices. So, there's a, there does seem to be a recognition there that, that there's a problem. Um, the agency itself is pretty small. And, you know, according to folks we've talked to who work there or have worked there, you know, just sort of extremely understaffed. So you have a couple hundred people trying to process, you know, million, again, millions of reports every year and sort of chase leads and figure out, you know, and, and sort of identify patterns of misconduct. Um, it took us, you know, sort of by comparison, you know, we had hundreds of journalists been, you know, spent more than a year digging through just a couple of thousand reports. And, um, you know, we don't have the resources that um, law enforcement agencies do, but it, but, but it did take a long time to put together the puzzle. So, you know, I guess I would say that the, um, that the agency is, is overwhelmed by the volume of reports and has, I think, simply just hasn't, hasn't been able to keep up. I mean, that's, that's our observation, at least. We are speaking with International Consortium of Investigative Journalists Chief Reporter Ben Hallman. Ben wrote the article, which we're about to talk about now, with Deutsche Bank's help and oligarchs buying spree trails ruin across the U.S. heartland. In it, Ben writes about Ihor Kolomoisky, a Ukrainian oligarch. For more than a decade, Kolomoisky siphoned billions of dollars from Privat Bank, Ukraine's largest financial institution, which he co-owned in audacious laundering scheme, cleaning the money through a web of companies around the world, U.S. federal prosecutors allege. An investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists shows that Deutsche Bank, the troubled global lender, played a pivotal role, transferring more than $750 million in Kolomoisky's business interests in the United States. 
how aware were the business interests here in the United States? Were the regulators and those who do oversight of such transactions, how aware were they that Kolomoisky was laundering money from criminal activities? Is that is, is that an easy or difficult thing to hide? Uh, well, so in this case, it was fairly easy for him to hide, again, by exploiting the kind of offshore structures that I described already. Just to give you a sense of kind of how this works, worked, um, Ior Kolomoisky is one of the wealthiest people in Ukraine, a country that's really been um, sort of torn apart by uh, corruption. Uh, he owns uh, steel industry, uh, steel factories and a television network. Um, and he also partly owns the country's biggest bank. And according to Ukraine um, authorities, uh, you know, he and his business partners, you know, embarked on kind of a systematic looting spree of this bank called Privet Bank. The money went from Privet Bank in Ukraine to accounts in Cyprus. Uh, the money went from Cyprus to the British Virgin Islands. Um, although these transactions were actually often only on paper, they didn't, money actually didn't go anywhere. It sort of pinged around different accounts, but that's technically how it, how it would have looked. And then it went to another company in Delaware, um, secretly controlled by Kolomoisky, because he didn't have to reveal the fact that he owned it. And then frontmen for that company went across the Midwest buying up, um, you know, luxury apartment buildings. Um, I think the, big, the biggest office tower in Cleveland, uh, PNC Plaza office tower in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, as we reported, um, uh, a lot of a bunch of steel factories, one in Cicero, Illinois, one in Ohio called Warren Steel and a few others. And so Kolomoisky was able to um, secretly become a, uh, uh, both a landlord and a big employer in the United States without the people who work without the people who live in these buildings or work in these buildings or work in these factories ever knowing about it. You quote a Mayor Kelly of Harvard, Illinois, who was caught up in this kind of scam, and he said, any hope for a new employer will have to wait. I still can't figure out if they bought the property to flip it or to just park cash. The reason I've jumped to that quote, uh, jumped ahead to that quote so much is because I don't think people understand what is meant by parking cash. Often I'll talk to people about how there's a lot of real estate in New York City that it just stands empty. It's just a place for people to park mm-hmm. cash. And people don't understand what is the point in parking cash. What's the point of Kolomoisky here uh, buying a building and then letting it go into disrepair and eventually abandoning it? Yeah, so I'll say I'll use the word allegedly here because this is according to U.S. prosecutors. But, um, you know, general, generally speaking, you, the goal of uh, someone who has illicit money is to make it clean again so they can spend it freely. Right. And so if you've taken money from your bank, let's just say, and in, in Ukraine and you're looking for uh, a good destination for it, the United States is a pretty good place. And as you mentioned, you know, uh, what we hear most about is, you know, buying up of luxury apartments in Miami and New York and other places. We were really struck because this is a story that took us to, you know, the American Midwest and the heartland um, and sort of affected real people's lives in sort of very obvious ways. Um, you know, they, bu- buying up you know, the, in, the, 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 what was the ultimate goal? You know, you know we don't know. Um, but if you think about it this way, if you bring in, you know, you buy, let's say you buy a factory for $50 million dollars even if it loses money and, and, you know, you have to sell it at a loss, all the money you're bringing back is now clean cash. So you sell your building for $25 million. 
if the $50 million was looted in the first place, it's not like you're actually out anything. You have just now you have $25 million and and clean money. So, you know, again, we don't know what the, what they were envisioning when they bought up all these properties and, and um, factories. Uh, but that is, you know, one possibility. I even spoke with a violin maker who told me that he knew that a lot of money was being parked in the investment of violins. The violin prices had gone through the roof. I've heard of this before, and it's always been fascinating to me. You write in your article, In a Fiery Ball, the explosion in a massive furnace at Warren Steel in Ohio blew out bricks and windows and sent workers hurtling to the ground, including three who were airlifted to burn units and two others rushed to local hospitals. In the aftermath, federal inspectors turned up serious safety violations at the plant. While workers railed about dangerous and decrepit conditions they said had been ignored, the 2011 blast was one of the first calamities to strike an American business owned by Kolomoisky. What does money laundering have to do with unsafe working conditions? Because I don't think people really understand the direct impact this can have on people's lives. Yeah, sure. I mean, just as a quick clarification, because we are, you know, all about proper accrediting at ICIJ. I edited this story. My colleague, Mike Sala, who's a terrific reporter, wrote it, wrote it. Okay. But um, the yeah, the so um, to, to your question, I mean, they they bought up uh, Kolomoisky and his associates bought up these factories. And we, you know, we went really look decided to do what no one else had done, which is dig into what happened next. Um, and you know, for whatever, for whatever reason, you know, he's an absentee landlord in a different country, a secret landlord or our employer, I should say, not landlord. Um, it, it appears that he didn't take very good care of the companies or, uh, uh, keep them up to standard. And so we just sort of found a string of accidents and, um, safety violations and, um, layoffs, job losses. So, you know, dozens of people were hurt, hundreds of people lost their jobs. Um, uh, at at the the factories that um, this guy bought and his associates bought, um, and you know, and we we reported the story because we felt you know I think something you're getting at we I think the like the money laundering is not a victimless crime, but it can be hard to make it to resonate with real people, and we think this example helps is sort of an, a, a way to sort of show how at, uh, it has real world implications. Well, in Cleveland, you point out how he was involved in a whole bunch of development projects. Those development projects then failed. Does Cleveland, does the Cleveland media, does the Cleveland government, it sounds like regulators kind of hold him, hold him responsible, but do, do the people of Cleveland hold this kind of money laundering responsible for this kind of financialization, responsible for the lack of development of their downtown area? Yeah, I mean, the Cleveland media has picked up a little bit uh, on the story since we published it. Um, I, I think... I think the short answer is no, because it wasn't obvious who was responsible. Um, the, uh, the, the DOJ, you know, launched a case against him, uh, Kolomoisky and his, some of his associates just, uh, just a couple of months ago. So this is a, still a pretty fresh story. Um, and I think putting together the pieces and sort of stitching together sort of the, the empire, I think at some point, at, at one point, he might've even been the largest um, landlord in, in Cleveland. I just I don't I just don't think that it was it was known because again it was in, it, it, his involvement Kolomoisky's involvement was intentionally clouded by this uh, by the way the transactions worked um, you would have had to have been 
um, a financial, well, and you can even have been a financial detective, but you, it basically, we, you know, we learned, we were able to put together the story um, through defense and file documents, which are leaked secret, highly secret records, and through other sources who gave us confidential documents that helped point us to different transactions and because of the Justice Department's own case. So it took all putting all together, all this material for us to be able to sort of stitch together the fabric of this quilt. And, um, you know, a local leader um, in Cicero, Illinois, or, um, uh, uh, you know, the Warren, Ohio, where we reported from as well, they just are not, they just don't have that information available. Um, and that's, I think, really one of the, the, the big systemic problems that we're trying to point at um, in our investigation. Uh, the piece also quotes Thomas Creel, a Chicago forensic accountant who has assisted the United Nations Security Council and the U.S. military on money laundering inquiries, saying, it's a reckless disregard of what the bank should be doing. They were looking at hundreds of millions of dollars. The bank was like the getaway car in a robbery. And this reference is to Deutsche Bank. Yeah. What do you take from Creel saying the bank was like the getaway car in a robbery? What do you think he means by that? How, what is the getaway car? Uh, it's, uh, let me unpack the metaphor. Yeah, I, I think he's, I mean, he's saying that the bank was the uh, escape route for the looted money, allegedly looted money. And, you know, just a quick note, I think it's interesting to say kind of how this, this, this part of the system works. Um, Deutsche Bank, in this instance, was not uh, was not a direct client, or I should say, Kolomoisky is not a direct client of Deutsche Bank. Rather, Deutsche Bank's client was Privet Bank, this Ukraine bank that he's accused of looting. So, you know, Deutsche Bank is is helping process transactions for this other bank in the Ukraine and trying to figure out what's going on. So we don't actually know, because Deutsche Bank wouldn't answer our questions, whether it was even aware that Kolomoisky was behind um, this huge flow of money. And, you know, we were able to track $750 million uh, flowing into Delaware and then out into the rest of the U.S. So it's a vast amount of money. When, when, when Deutsche Bank did, however, have some indication that it was banking Kolomoisky, we see in the Finson files, it raising red flags about uh, transactions involving his um, airline, um, but then not really doing anything about it. So again, you know, we talked earlier about sort of this rubber stamping exercise or apparent rubber stamping exercise. So they file the SAR, the Suspicious Activity Report, um, and process the transaction anyway, and, and then file another one a few years later. And that kind of is uh, the pattern we saw across the investigation. You write in, or the article states, in Ukraine, the alleged money laundering scheme was a massive scandal, prompting the government to plug a $5.5 billion hole in private banks' finances. Had it failed, it could have taken the country's fragile economy with it. What was the impact of that $5.5 billion hole, not only on how the economy affected the people of, of Ukraine, but on the political climate in Ukraine, to what extent can money laundering have an impact on a nation, a state, a community politically? Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is, we talk about these sort of hidden, um, sort of hidden injustices, right, um, at ICIJ. So uh, money laundering is really that, you, you know, the, the secondary and tertiary effects are not always clear, but what is clear is that strongmen and uh, dictators and uh, other corrupt officials sort of exploit, you know, the global financial system 
you know, pull money out of their countries, put it into secret companies and offshore, uh, offshore shell, um, sorry, offshore jurisdictions. Um, and by doing so, they're able to sort of hold on to power and, um, uh, you know, perpetuate their own own rules. Um, and Ukraine, you know, is one of the, the uh, most corrupt countries in Eastern Europe. Um, if, if you're one of the richest, you know, so the richest people in Ukraine often got there allegedly through sort of devious means. So simply banking them poses a risk to financial institutions in the first place. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that may come out of this or that, you know, we, uh, we've heard from regulators that they're going to look at more closely is just sort of how banks and financial institutions sort of treat these what are called politically exposed persons or PEPs, these highest risk clients, you know, they're supposed to be on the high, you know, high alert for any money movements involving them. Um, But again, you know, we saw, we've seen, we see them being able to move their money fairly freely, despite all that. You mentioned one of the least examined consequences of money laundering, what happens to communities and everyday people when absentee owners motivated to clean ill-gotten cash take control of workplaces and buildings. Is this a relatively new phenomenon? Were there rules and regulations that kept this from happening in the past? And can we simply return to those old rules and apply them to today? Uh, No, I don't think it's a new phenomenon, but it has accelerated. Um, for all the reasons that, uh, yeah, look, the, the world is more connected than it's ever been. Um, global trade now happens internationally at a scale that it never happened before, uh, happened that before. And really the same is true with illicit and criminal activity. I mean, basically, you know, money launderers and criminal networks, they're just basically using the same systems that legitimate businesses do. The volume is so high and the speed is so great that it, it really is um, a major challenge for anybody involved to, to, to detect and sort of crack down on it. So, you know, do you know, your question about new tools and and new approaches. um, Yeah, I think, look, I, you know, we spent 16 months digging into this, digging into this problem. And uh, I think sort of the unavoidable takeaway and, and, and this, I don't even know that a lot of financial institutions would disagree is the system it was created to stop illicit cash from flowing freely around the globe. It's, it just isn't. It just isn't working. And you're not going to stop, obviously, every um, dirty transaction. But um, you know, by one estimate, 99% of all laundered money flows without interruption. So it seems like improving on that percentage <laughs> should be uh, should should be a goal, and it's probably achievable. I think it's going to take a, a real rethinking of how the world, how the global financial institution and the checks and balances work. Um, right now, the U.S. is really the epicenter of everything because businesses want to do business in U.S. dollars. So, you know, transactions, so many of these transactions end up flowing through New York, meaning that, you know, some of the biggest New York banks have like a real primary role in potentially at least stopping laundered money before it gets to its final destination. Um, but that, you know, but, you know, we, we, we see them in this investigation, like just not being able to figure out even who is behind, as we talked about with Kolomoisky, who is even behind the transaction and kind of going to their client banks, a bank in Latvia or Ukraine or Cyprus or some other 
money laundering haven and asking questions and not getting answers and then sort of throwing up their hands and filing a report to financial authorities in the U.S., which also seem to throw up their hands. So um, sorry, that's a long answer, but I think right the, the short of it is that the, the system that's been built to stop money laundering uh, is broken. Well, how good or how bad would it be for global banking if all of a sudden all of these criminal activities did end? How much does the global banking system depend upon these, or are they, do, do they actually undermine the global banking system? I think they undermine the global banking system, and I, honestly, I think probably most banks would trade um, a handful of these high net worth clients for not having to pay these massive compliance costs. But it's not. But that's just not a trade that's on the table at the moment. Um, one, you know, one thing our reporting found is there's tension within banks about how to handle um, suspect clients. Um, so you have, you know, wealth divisions of major banks who whose bonuses um, who make a lot of money and who, whose bonuses sort of depend on luring uh, certain clients clients of a certain you know status into the bank um, and sort of harvesting fees from them. Um, you know, we've seen that certainly with Deutsche Bank uh, and Donald Trump. Uh, and then meanwhile, you have these other parts of the same bank, these compliance desks based in New York or in the Midwest even, um, you know, sort of raising red flags and sending alarms and waving their hands about those same clients. Um, you know, we don't know in every instance who wins the fight. But, you know, again, kind of looking back, one of the things that these reports show us, and they cover, most of them cover more than a decade, is we see these compliance officers sort of, you know, blowing the whistle or, you know, sounding alarms about a client only to do so again two or three years later, and maybe again two or three years after that. So it seems as though within the financial institutions, the profit centers are, are, are at the moment uh, are winning. And you mentioned about this uh, returning to the same place and doing the exact same offenses again and again. You write how here in Illinois, Harvard community leaders, Harvard, Illinois uh, community leaders, were at first thrilled when a Kolomoisky company bought the former Motorola plant. I remember when that happened. That was a huge news here in town because, uh, even in Chicago, because the Motorola, Motorola plant had you know, employed so many people and it was going to bring back the town of Harvard, which had been devastated by that lack of a Motorola plant. You write the giant complex once heralded as a manufacturing center that would turn the region into a vibrant economic corridor had lain dormant ever since Motorola pulled out five years earlier, a consequence of dramatic changes in the cell phone industry, but hopes the new owner would recruit a new tenant for the massive complex were soon dashed. You quote, uh, Harvard Mayor Tom Kelly saying nothing happened and it just deteriorated. It's got a leaky roof. Mold has taken over the entire building. And in 2014, the local utility company shut off the power. They lost $7 million. You then write the buyer, an investor who was uh, char- changed the next year uh, in, was charged the next year in a big fraud case. The following buyer, after Kolomoisky lost control over it, all of a sudden the next year in a big fraud case in Canada, the new buyer <laughs> bought the place. So then a federal judge had uh, put a freeze on the sale of the center at the behest of Canadian prosecutors. Why is this property? Why is this community so popular with this kind of fraud? Is it something about this community? Is it something about the leadership there that they just turn a blind? Die to these kinds of poor investments, or is it not their fault? Oh, I don't. I don't think it's unique to Harvard, Illinois. I mean, I think that you know this is a pattern you would see anywhere in the United States, right? A, a small town that has really is has one employer or one big tax base, and the company goes under or leaves, 
and they're desperate, right? I mean, I think that's, that, and, you know, and when you're desperate, maybe you don't ask all the questions you should ask. Um, you know, a buyer comes in, makes a bunch of big promises. Uh, that's really enticing. And I, you know, I, again, I really, I think it, um, the fact that it happened twice uh, in this one town is probably just bad luck, but I don't think it's unique to, um, I don't think the problem is unique to Harvard, Illinois. You wrote that right that inside some of the plants that Kolomoisky owned, steelworkers said safety standards were often ignored. You then quote yeah. William Norman, 67, who worked in the lab testing metal strength, saying they just kept cutting corners. They were running a skeleton crew. They would not hire more help. I would tell them they needed to hire more people, but they didn't want to hear it. Could this have happened? Could this kind of situation have happened? in the past when there was far more robust labor organizing and unionization, or are those not solutions in addressing the kind of fraud that can cost workers jobs? Uh, that's a, you know, that's a good question. You know, maybe, and I, I honestly, I don't know what the labor situation is like at that, at that, at that one facility. Um, you know, I, I think generally speaking though, just based on reporting experience, uh, if you have, um, you know, workforce that is, um, it has the ability to to, to challenge management. Uh, it often leads to you know better and more worker protections. Why do you think people view these as victimless crimes? You quote Tom Cardamore, president and CEO of Global Finance Integrity, a Washington, D.C. Uh, think tank that tracks the flow of illicit money, saying yeah. there is a ripple effect. People often think these are victimless cl- crimes. They are not. There can be significant, significant collateral damage. We were talking about this right at the beginning. But why? Why do you think it is that people believe these are victimless crimes? Um, I, you know, I think because it's, it's complicated. Um, I think because you st- when you start talking about high finance and money laundering and offshore t- tax shelters, and I can say this with some authority, having done a lot of reporting on it over the last few years, uh, you know, you got to grab people's attention. It's not a, um, let me put it this way. So I, you know, I think if you, you know, are watching cable news and you see a video of um, a police officer kneeling on a man's neck, uh, until he dies, right? You don't need to have anybody interpret that for you as an injustice. It's right there. It's visible. Um, and the proliferation of video cameras has allowed, you know, police brutality and other social injustices to really to come to light. Here, you know, it's everything is hidden. You know, there's uh, you you can you you're these uh, criminals or you know drug networks are able to hide their activity behind. Um, Baseless companies, and uh, and and then you know in Kolmoisi's case, buy up a bunch of businesses which he seems to have neglected, or in other cases um, that we reported on, you know, move move opioids into the United States without uh, without detection. So I you know I don't I don't you know we certainly don't think it's a victimless crime. I think crime. I think it's for a lot of people it's just an invisible one. They just don't aren't able. They don't have the information to be able to see the chain of events that led to whatever harm has befallen them. One more question for you, Ben. We have been speaking with International Consortium of Investigative Journalists chief reporter Ben Hallman, who uh, leads the reporting team at the ICIJ. You can find all of Ben's work and the ICIJ's work on the FinCEN files at icij.org, and you can follow Ben on Twitter at ben underscore Hallman, as I was saying earlier, uh, Ben won the uh, Bartlett, got the, let's see, uh, Bartlett, Bartlett, sorry, 
Steel Bronze Prize for Investigative Reporting. That's based. Uh, that's named after two people who have been on our show in the past, Don Bartlett and James Steele. So you can find our interviews with them as well at thisishell.com when you search on their names. One last question for you, Ben, as we do with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Uh, ICIJ quotes Valeria Gantareva, the former chairwoman of Ukraine's top regulatory agency, saying, We called it an expanding universe. They were creating new shell companies, opening new bank accounts for them. This is how the pyramid grew. How much is the global economy, or at least the criminal part of it, just a big pyramid scheme? Because you would think pyramid schemes would be incredibly obvious by now, as they have been around since the pyramids. So have pyramid schemes gotten better? Do they always work? Or does that just reveal how much this money was simply being ignored? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I don't know that this was really a pyramid scheme in the way that you and I would think about it. I think this is the pyramid she's referring to is just the um, the layers of secrecy, um, you know, like a cake in which, you know, get, you get to one just to find another layer of secrecy. And again, if you, you know, just to point back at what we, the source information for a lot of our reporting are these financial documents. These are financial intelligence reports put out by the banks about their own clients or money, you know, clients of clients who are moving money through their accounts, and they're not able to figure out who's behind it a lot of the times. So I think that really speaks to the problem, right? Even the banks, even who, who have a, who should have all the information at their fingertips, are struggling to find out who is behind transactions and accounts and companies. Um, and when they start digging, and when we start digging, we found out it's some of the uh, most dangerous people in the world. Which is frightening. Ben, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating investigation. Everybody should be checking out ICIJ on a regular basis anyway, but especially on the FinCEN files. And if they want to go back and learn more about the Panama Papers, they can do that there as well. Thank you so much for being on our show. It truly was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. This was great. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Mel and tell us how listeners are answering so far. Uh, no responses yet. Mm. But this week's question from Hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Alex will have your answers to this week's question from Hell at the end of tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins... Our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell face mask at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history and rotten history. Mid-October, 1780, 240 years ago this week, a massive hurricane slammed in the Caribbean, first laying waste the islands of Barbados, St. Lucia, Martinique, and St. Eustatius and then moving north across Puerto Rico and up the Atlantic seaboard all the way to Canada. From evidence and accounts that were preserved, modern scientists estimate it as a Category 5 hurricane with winds of up to 200 miles an hour. It caused enormous damage to ships of the British fleet, which were present throughout the Caribbean along the North American coast because, you know, 
slavery. Thus, the storm likely influenced the course of the American Revolution, which was ongoing at the time, but it also killed some 22 to 27,000 people, making it by far the most deadly Atlantic hurricane in history. A hurricane may have had an impact on the outcome of the U.S. Revolutionary War. Who knows? If that hurricane, a hurricane as strong as Katrina, but far more deadly, if that hurricane had not made landfall, who knows? Right now, we might all be speaking British. In Rotten History, October 12th, 1654, 366 years ago, this, well, today, in the uh, town of Delft, Delft in Holland, where a former Catholic convent had been converted into an ammunition storage depot. This is not going to go well. The storage manager entered it to check on the condition of some 30 tons of gunpowder that were kept there in barrels. And as this is rotten history, you know something is going to blow up real good. The manager made the fatal mistake of carrying a lantern. And the powder exploded with a force that could be heard for miles. Public, public service announcement for you our listeners, from your friends here at This Is Hell. If you ever have the opportunity to enter and visit a gunpowder warehouse, try not to carry with you anything that is already burning. The blast, which would become known as the Delft Thunderclap, destroyed much of the town, killed more than 100 people, and injured more than 1,000. Among the dead was a 32-year-old painter named Carol Fabricius, who was widely regarded as Rembrandt's most talented pupil and was rapidly developing a distinctive and interesting style of his own. Fabricius's studios were destroyed, along with most of his paintings. Only a few of his works have survived. And Rinaldo is absolutely correct. I was unaware of the work of Carol Fabricius. You should check it out. It's like Rembrandt 2.0. It actually is Rembrandt modified to the next level. Very intense. Finally, in Rotten History on October 12th, 1964, 56 years ago, again today, the Soviet Union launched three cosmonauts on one of the most risky and dangerous space flights in history. Both U.S. President Lyndon Johnson and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev viewed the Cold War space race as a matter of international prestige, and when Khrushchev learned the Americans would soon launch a new two-man Gemini spacecraft, he ordered his engineers to outdo them fast. So they basically took a one-person Vostok spacecraft of the type flown by Yuri Gagarin and stripped it down. By removing many safety features, including the ejection seat, they managed to cram three lightweight seats into the Vostok by mounting them sideways so that lead pilot Vladimir Komarov would have to constantly turn his neck at a 90-degree angle to see the controls of the spacecraft, which sounds like a freaking nightmare. To fit inside, all three crew members would have to go on crash diets before the flight and would not wear spacesuits. So this sounds like a suicide mission more than a space flight. As engineers worked around the clock to throw the spacecraft together, the crew members did three quick months of training. Then off they went, orbiting the Earth for 24 hours, packed together so tight inside the cabin that they could hardly move. To conceal the true nature of the flight, the Vostok was named Voskhod, the Russian word for sunrise, and no photos were released, so that demoralized Americans would think it was a new vehicle comparable to the U.S. three-man Apollo, which was still on the drawing board. But come on. No pictures. The U.S. and everyone had to be incredibly suspicious. Khrushchev was delighted and spoke to the orbiting cosmonauts by telephone. But moments later, 
And right when you think they're gonna all explode in a fiery ball of explosive nightmare and detritus? Nope. Khrushchev was summoned by the Kremlin and informed that he had been ousted by the Soviet Politburo and replaced by Leonid Brezhnev and Alexei Kosygin, who greeted the cosmonauts when they returned safely to Earth the next day. So wait, the cosmonauts actually survived, but Khrushchev's political career did not? Two and a half years later, Komarov would be launched on another politically rushed flight aboard another unproven spacecraft and would be killed when parachutes failed to deploy during his descent to Earth. So, karma, I guess? And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is on the show. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Frank will be on to talk about his book, The People Know. And Wednesday, uh, we are going to have... uh, Thomas Gawkey to talk about uh, the Debt Collective's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay. And nothing for Thursday. Uh, not yet. I got some questions for you about that, though. But Jeffy is going to be doing the moment of truth at yep. the end of the show, as he always does. We are still looking for new volunteer board operators to join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in being a board operator with our uh, you know, very modest stipend that we include, all you have to do is just email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. That's what Nick did, and he emailed saying if you're looking to do some training with little to no hand-holding along the way, I know I'm a great fit for this volunteer opportunity. I have experience as a video editor for the Heartland Poker Tour, editing many promos and episodes for their hour-long show syndicated in many markets across the United States. I have experience with some audio editing, having taken a class on podcasting. I also have edited my own albums of my own music. And by the way, if you are somebody who is interested in the position, you will then have access access to a professional studio and if you do want to do your own podcast or want to work on your own music you will be able to do that as well here nick says i'm a quick learner and a constant student i hope to learn more through this medium thanks for your time if you have any questions for me feel free to reach out and we did nick will be con will be contacting you soon i think we already did actually and uh, we're going to be contacting everyone who we have heard from about the position very soon. We also want to thank those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Thanks for the tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell by Kilter. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. I want to thank today's guest, Ben Hallman of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and our conversation on FinCEN. I want to thank producer Alex Jerry and thank you to Daphne for showing up as well. Special thanks to Theron and Richard again. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>